You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Well, hello, everybody. This is host Adam Keith and Matt Dye, and we're here for another Habitat Heroes Land Legacy podcast breakout. What was it you wanted to say, Matt? I said, "Welcome to the construction zone. We hope you got your steel toe boots and hard hats on because it's about to get rough in here tonight." Yeah, we're gonna smash toes and including our own. <laughs> yeah, um, and shake up things. It's about to be good. Th- you know, shake and bake. I heard. I heard. <laughs> it. I'm listening to. A bo- I'm reading a book right now. Listening to audio book as I'm going down the road, and I heard a really good phrase. And the phrase was, <laughs> "This is really good because this is what we're doing right here. You got to sure. stir the pot because it'll burn on the bottom." Yeah, that's right. That's and right. so uh, we're stirring the pot because we don't want it to burn on the bottom. Can't can't have that burnt smell going through the house no we can't have it so we're cooking chili and we don't want it to burn on the bottom so we're stirring this pot up and this podcast is one that not the first time we've stirred some pots out here (laughs) i'll say that we do it almost every week but but uh, this week is where the title stirs the pot yeah yeah and and with, with zero intention beyond education and however this is some important stuff and observations that we see, um, and ways ways to save people time though too. Time and money, two of our biggest resources that are often overused or um, not taken to account for the amount of money it may cost, or long term negative effects you may have on the landscape, or, or just time with little yields or benefit. That's right. And the, and a lot of these right here are either take a lot of time, take a lot of money, little results, uh, or they're detriment, detrimental to the overall landscape. Maybe not one year after, two years after, five years after, but maybe ten years after you're going, oh, man, that was really, really stupid. Oh, it's just silly. And so these are all designed to bring some awareness to some very trendy things that may be out there right now. Um, and and we will explain why we're coming from it from this standpoint. And, and again, to say, again, this is this is just straight information, no, no like, direction or anything. And, and to say, too, that <laughs> we've probably done some of these ourselves and spent time. So this is not coming from... I know I th- have, yes. From, you know... This is personal experience. Like, crap, that was a waste of time. That was dumb. This, prod- this podcast is brought to you by, um, well, how old am I now? I'm 31. I started first food plot when I was 11. So 20 years food plots. Um, tw- so at least 15 years. No, 12 years of failures in food plot plantings. Um, or learning, I guess. We had really successful ones, but long-term negative effects. And now consulting business in 26 states, over 35,000 acres covered. Um, we've seen a lot of ground, and we've seen a lot of mistakes, and we've seen a lot of money being spent in areas that should not have been spent there. So that's where we're coming from, um, from that experience. But at the other side, we're coming to you from a holistic mindset of, We've got these resources that we need to manage. We need to manage them right, because so many years in a row 
of improper management has gotten us to where we are today and seen what we see and facing what we face. So time to turn the ship around and get her pointed in the right direction. Yes, and so when I say holistic, there's when we're doing something for one species in particular, we have to understand that it may affect 20 other native species. And so we don't want to do something that's only beneficial to one species that's negative to 20 others. Both, both plants and animals. So And, and we're, we care about the water, we care about the soil, we care about the air, we care about all this stuff. It, it, it makes a difference. What we do in the landscape, as we have seen year in, year out, since man has settled this country, we have seen the results of that, good and bad. So we've got to learn from them and make sure as we're moving forward, we're putting our best foot forward and doing the practices that are going to make the biggest improvements across right. the landscape. Any before we, before we start going down this list of 12 things, any, I'll be in Michigan no. next month right around Grand Rapids, uh, June you said 15th, 14th 14th. and 15th, yeah. 14th. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen any announcements yet, but there'll be a, uh, cutie may branch host an event and we'll have a get together and right around grand rapids. Um, so that's something coming up in August. One of us will be at the Douglas County USDA yep. soil and water wildlife expo conference yep um in kansas in kansas uh somewhere in douglas county um <laughs> i don't even I don't remember e- where that was I, don't, I haven't seen that that uh that one either they had i guess times or anything like that but um, it's coming and then we i think cutie may deer stewart too is all booked up so yep you guys that are going to be there here. can't sit come here on. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, here we're we're looking forward to that event. That's going to be a great one. So if you're signed up, awesome. We'll we'll see you there. We are preparing and have don't have the details enough yet to to officially announce, but we'll be doing a workshop type weekend deal um in August as well. So those are those details are getting and ironed there may, out. There may be some sooner. There may be Correct. some in July. So be watching because these are going to be events that are designed specifically for you in mind uh guys that may not may not want to do a consultation but they still want to meet up and learn some techniques these are going to be get in the field very in the field in-depth look at all the stuff we do how to create bedding thickets or temporary forest openings how to use edge feathering how to fell trees how to use prescribed fire techniques tricks that we use to improve the landscape and make it more more uh, successful hunting uh, adventure. So, and and I think we mentioned it last week, um, or hinted around that June June first um, that week. Um, in the next couple of weeks after, there's going to be some announcements um, within Land and Legacy that you're going to want to be listening for and looking for. Um, that's as much as I'm going to say. But there's some cool, cool stuff coming that um, hopefully is going to get you guys amped as as much as we are with those additions to uh, to Land and Legacy. So um, we're excited for that. So be watching, be listening, and waiting for some June 1 announcements. Um, I think that covers pretty much it. Um, leave us a review, please. Oh, check out our YouTube channel and social media if you haven't already. Videos dropping every week. Uh, a lot of turkey stuff going on right now, but you're soon going to see some food plot techniques and testing things we're doing, um, small food plots, large food plots, different projects that we have going on. So you definitely want to check it out. If you didn't care about the turkey hunts, and by now you've stuck around for the first five minutes of this podcast, I know you're interested in land, and there's going to be a lot of videos that are short Ooh. versions of our podcast dropping this summer that like you can see three real-life I guess, examples of what we're talking about. Instead of hearing us yak on for an hour every week or two hours, if you listen to both podcasts, um, you're going to now get to see it in a five-minute or shorter video that really hits it home on exactly what we mean by edge feathering or hinge cutting or food plot techniques, all this stuff. You're going to want to be watching it. That's right. All right, so let's go ahead and start. I don't know how far, and it looks like you may have another announcement. Is that right? Oh, me? No. We're All good. right. We're, We're eight minutes into this, so let's go ahead and start with 
numero uno. And again, we're just going to lay it out there. There's yep. going to be real truthful um, our perspectives. Again, and, and a lot of these things, too, can be regionally based, and we're going to try and address that um, you know, as we describe these things. But um, a lo- as we often say, because we come at things from a different perspective, listen with an open mind and, and just – Try and apply what we're saying to your property. And, and again, we've we, made many of these mistakes too. When you say open so. mind too, keep in mind that this is for not just an open mind in, in these practices, but open mind that we're considering species that oftentimes don't get considered. Um, and it could be microbes in the soil or it could be a, uh, a fish downstream. Um, we're trying to consider everything that's in this native landscape. So number, number, <laughs> number one is more specifically in a time management and production mindset. So it takes some time to make this wine, and this wine ain't very good when it's finished. It could take a lot of work. Now, there are examples of really good um, practices of this. Before I give it away, I was trying to think of the word to say, but there are some times where these are really good. But specifically, this one is for less than 10 trees scattered around, um, they're, and they're not getting maintained appropriately, and therefore you devote a lot of time, a lot of money to it, and you don't get much production, and it ends up being a waste of your time and a waste of your money that you limp along for years waiting for it to be productive, and it almost never gets to where it, what you were uh, it never gets to your expectations and that is fruit trees specifically apple trees and and let's let's be real um soft mass trees yes are attractive they they offer different things to not just deer but a vast amount of of wildlife and for that reason they are desirable and oftentimes as soon as they hit the ground yes they do attract um deer but lots of other critters that consume them at a, a very high pace, uh, rapidly, so you don't get to see the benefit or the full strength of that additional forage for the species that you're out there pr- trying to promote um, or your focus is. So oftentimes you put all this effort in, wait all these years for limited production, and truthfully, a lot of some you know not all these trees are going to live. Um, there's a lot of diseases that can happen. Again, you're spending a lot of time pruning, watering, um, spraying herbicides, pesticides around them. Um, rabbits, mice are, are predators of these trees, fruit trees, oftentimes when they're Speci- young. Yep. So, I mean, there's just a lot of things that could go wrong for a small yield or, or a limited result down the road. If you are going into full-on production of of apple trees and putting a lot of time and knowing ahead that that's what's going to take to see the results you want to okay maybe you're you're then um better suited for that practice but it gets a lot different when you go into financial gains from gains from it same thing with cattle or even owning land or in the crop field, uh, crop farmers take a lot more into it and do a lot more, a lot of times, inputs and, and things to m- maximize their profits. Um, sure. With with these fruit trees, we're specifically talking about the... In an, a couple in and around a food plot. Yep. There, it's limited results, and it takes a while, and it takes a lot of time and money to get there. Pollination is a huge factor in yep. fruit trees, especially the apples we're talking about. And it's going to take multiple types of trees to get the cross-pollination so you get maximum pro- uh, production out of it. So if you're only going to plant a couple and you're like, well, I planted I planted two apple trees and a crab apple, and it's going to be great. This is the overrated process we're talking mm-hmm. about. Correct. Um, there's, there's usually a better option. You can plant other types of trees. We love planting trees. We love trees. But not we don't devote our time to plant single single apple trees in every one of our food plots. So I, I when I think of because everyone's time is limited and we're gonna yeah. probably bring this up mul- multiple times throughout the podcast, but time is limited and time is value. And when I'm either let's say at the farm working or doing something, I want to have the biggest impact I can on that property, so it, I have better results. And so I'm not gonna spend so much time on something limited that basically occupies 
you know, 20 by 20 square foot on a property. I want to do something bigger and better. That's right. Yeah. So if you are, you know, you're going to see us over time planting trees and food plots or edge of food plots. They're not going to be a single apple tree. They're going to be something else. And, uh, and it's going to be something that doesn't require all the maintenance. If I'm planting something too, if I'm planting a tree, Nine times out of ten, I'm going to try and find something that's native. That way I don't have to continue amending the soil and trying to help it along, crutch it along. I want something that's adapted to my site, stick it in the ground, and it knows what to do. Take it from here. Yes. All right. Hope those big toes weren't crushed on that one. Yeah. Number n- two. Number two is a big shocker. Big, big shocker to every one of you guys who oh, have followed yeah, along very long at all. Um, you know this. Don't know why I even got to say it, but it is overrated in the world of land management, and that is eastern red cedar bedding areas. I don't know why I got to keep. Why do I got to keep saying this? Um, eastern red cedar bedding areas. Once again, these are the t- we're talking about monocultures of eastern red cedar, where somebody says that's the best bedding they have. It may be the best bedding you have, but it's not because that's the best option for bedding. That's and, a, that's and an indicator that you have poor habitat. That's right. Not quality and, or not just poor habitat, but you may have limited areas of vegetation that's not a crop that's over two inches tall. <laughs> yes. So you know, eastern red cedar bedding really gets this. I mean, there's so many people that are that love it. You see it, and you it ends up being you see this in areas where. Uh, it's crop ground, it's southern Iowa, it's it's Kansas, and people say, that's where all my deer bed. But then you say, okay, well, let's look at the native landscape. Okay, we know this native landscape was prairie with shrubs. Where is that at? It's gone. Well, that's that that's because of cr- it either was turned into crops or it grew up in cedar trees because there was no fire. Um, or it was overgrown pa- old pasture that ended up getting overtaken with cedar trees. Or yeah, or it's just abandoned land that no one touches anymore, and it's relatively secure and limited cover. I don't know how many times I've said this so. on the podcast, so I'll say it again because I'm not sure I've said it lately. Eastern red cedar pre-settlement was a species that was confined to very rocky areas or areas where fire couldn't reach it to thin it back or kill it. It's a very, very flammable tree. It does not handle fire well. Most of the Midwest and parts of this country were shaped with fire set by lightning or by Native Americans. And so the eastern red cedar was confined to very rocky cliffs, um, places where fire wasn't. And that wasn't many places. And so it adapted over time to growing in these very dry, very tough conditions. Once fire was removed from the landscape through settlement and now crop ground and all these other places where just fire isn't a regular occurrence in many places. Now we have this species that was adapted over time to very rugged, very rocky uh terrain and locations for example drive down the road and and eastern red cedar in the midwest will be one of them that's sticking out of the side of a bluff a lot and it's because it can handle that so you take that tree and you stick it in a site that's very fertile where it has plenty of nutrients it will outcompete a lot of the other native species to a point where it has a very aggressive state to it now it is a native tree but it's native to rocky rocky junky ground it's not supposed to be on these big beautiful deep bottom fields or prairie settings um, where fire would have regularly swept across the the landscape pre-settlement so that's our that's our spill about eastern red cedar eastern red cedar bedding is not great because there are other times other bedding um, mixes blends better bedding areas that also provide food as well as cover and as well as are much better for the landscape. Eastern red cedar monocultures, once they take over, they're not great for water infiltration and they're not great for a lot of, a lot of things. It it, it creates a very um, out of balance ecosystem. Now there are some birds that eat the berries. So before you jump on me about that and thinking holistically, we don't hate cedar tree, eastern red cedar trees. We just don't like eastern red cedar monocultures. Or, or just 
trees where they're growing where they shouldn't be. It's no different from a sycamore on a ridge top. Well, that shouldn't be there. Why are you there? Let's, yeah. Let's put put you back in your place. No different. And so, like, if we're on a landscape and there's scattered eastern red cedars in a native grass stand in a prairie, and it's like, woo, uh, what do you guys think about that? If it's under four foot tall, we're like, I'm not mad at it because I know the next fire's taking it out. I'm not mad at it. Um, but if I see it encroaching and taking away those native grasses, of course I'm going to be saying we need to take care of that problem. Um, so there it is. Eastern Got red it. cedar bedding, um, very overrated. You have other options that can provide both winter woody browse, both cover, um, as porch. well as uh, forage, not just for the deer, but for quail, um, for other songbirds for rabbits, for mice, whatever it is, there's a better option. All right, next one. Number three, overrated things on the land, man-made water holes, and yeah. specifically ones that are small that require continuing maintenance, continued filling them up. In the summer, we're like, oh, let's go out and dump some water I've got to go out, and I'm I'm riding around, and I'm hauling a water truck around, and I'm filling these water holes, and they dry up and evaporate in, in a week or two weeks, and they fill up with algae, and it's like, man, let's think about that from a natural standpoint. That's not very natural. Well, it's it's man-made, so it's it's not natural. <laughs> but, he, I mean, uh, here's the thing. Deer, they get water two different ways. Of course, by drinking it. Um but also they, they, they get it through um, metabolizing their food. And so that's about 80% of their water intake is, is through that process, the metabolic process. So I'm, I'm looking again at bang for the buck. It's like, do I, give, do I put this in a place where I want to hunt over it for um, the opportunity, you know, 20% of the time that a deer needs water to go right here to this exact spot? Um, and I'm going to put all this resource and effort into it during the summertime, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that um, because, well, especially in our area, there's a lot of springs. Um, there's water. Water Seeps. is not lim limited. Uh, we've got a lot of cattle ponds. There are portions of the country, don't get me wrong, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, um, eastern Colorado, those things where water is definitely limited. And you might have a small property where water is limited, but – these these small I've seen like kiddie pools things like that. Kiddie like, pools. Whenever I, I, don't, I don't I don't understand that because it is going to dry up. It's very shallow, um, so you have to continue. It's like the fruit tree. You have to keep coming back, coming back, coming back, and putting time and energy into it. But then usually in most most places, most temperate places, come September, when deer season begins to open back up, you are getting rain. Like it's usually not that big of a deal. Yeah. So again, that that metabolic process—that what is the mar large majority of water intake. So again, this is strictly just a bang for the buck, time-wise. This is not making sense. Not making sense because all that time you're devoting to this, you could be you could be increasing the amount of uh, young forest, early successional habitat of species that provide more um, provide more nutrition during that that uh, drought period. How many times have we looked at giant ragweed or common ragweed in July and August when soybeans are starting to turn up and they're not very um, palatable, they're not very attractive to a deer, and you look at the giant ragweed or common ragweed down the bottom, or uh, what's another one we've looked at a lot too? Jewelweed. Um, jewelweed, that's the one I was that's looking for. And it's like, man, they're hammering juicy. that. Yeah. Do something to increase that because not only is that beneficial to deer, but that's beneficial to a wide variety of other species. Well, Jewelweed's a time, great one for bumblebees. At the same time, they, they're they foraging but then getting the water intake. They don't have to, like, spend energy going to go get a drink. They're just browsing like they naturally and normally should do. And, again, there's people out there who have killed deer over a kiddie pool. Like, I, I get it. I understand it. They, they've proven that. That it has worked, but again, it has to be under the very like distinct conditions, and those conditions don't have ever happen or don't always happen every single year. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna plan for that absolute worst condition for a hunting benefit. I'm gonna plan for the overall habitat and know that I'm making a greater impact 
and that's where my time and energy is going to be versus a little hunting technique like leave that. it better than you found it and if you forget or whatever the water tank the the truck hauler has a flat tire and or you, you get called out for business and you don't show back up for that water hole the deer got to go find it somewhere else anyway you might as well devote your time to where you're improving the habitat to where it is available whether you're there or not water holes that was it i mean it, again it's pretty simple i mean it's, it's nothing like and that's not to say you can't build little ponds like in clay sure. site where it's like a little bitty bedroom size. Where soils are adapted or, or meant to hold water. I love that's them. That's fine. That's great. I mean, that, we're all about that. But we're talking about little bitty. Something's going to dry up in an instant and quickly. That's, a, again, time and energy. Overrated. Overrated. All right. What's next? Might as well, since we're already... Losing half the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those who are still listening. <laughs> Hinge cutting. Yeah, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this one again. We've hit it so hard in the past, but we say that we said that on the last two, and we still spent a good five ten minutes it just, on it. So hinge cutting overrated from a la- from a big picture mindset. Think big picture, big picture. You shouldn't be going into your entire woodlot and hinge cutting every undesirable tree that's not going to be a marketable log. Well, let, let's just not say undesirable. I've seen places, <laughs> many properties where desirables have been hinged. It's like, <gasps> why? Why do we? Why do we do this? Why? Yeah. Why? Why are we here right now observing this? Um, that is, and we're again talking about holistic. That is a very anti-holistic mindset when you go in and, and do that. I understand that tornadoes happen, this and that. Um, and yes, some woodlots would get destroyed in that situation. But why are we why are we going with that mindset and purposefully creating that, that mess when it can be done better with um, more habitat improved and timber still quality-wise still there or, or getting improved while we have better cover um, and ease of travel through areas, it just doesn't make sense to go in and widespread do that. There, we do talk about what, what we term as a bedding area thicket, and we will incorporate some hinge cuts into that system or that general area, but it's not a, if you will, monoculture of hinge cuts. It's very species-dependent and site-specific. Sometimes there's not any. A lot of times we just flush cut a, a tree and walk away, and that's done. Hinge cutting, not a holistic management technique. You get stump sprouts and regrowth out of flush cutting trees. You can. You will. It happens. You don't have to hinge a tree to get regrowth. Overrated. Overrated. (laughs) Oh, man. Next one up is going to take a little bit of explaining because – the five of you that are left that aren't mad at us. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, that, that won't actually send an email this week. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get them to leave a review by the end of this. Yeah. Um, is crop ground. Oh, yeah. And crop ground being overrated. No, nope, we just lost them. They were, yeah. There they went. <laughs> They're like, you guys are idiots. Yeah. Crop ground, overrated. We're talking about crop ground and and kind of the one that I used to describe this to Matt when he was telling me uh, when we're brainstorming is like oh this this, this goes this back is, to the regional comments we made earlier not all crop ground but hang with us here hang with us here. I, if I was a landowner or I, I I guess I am a landowner but if I was buying a farm in in Iowa I would probably want crop ground because I'd want the income and that's great but this type when we say overrated overrated things and we say crop ground. This is what we mean. Crop ground that gets planted in one species in the spring, corn, soybeans, it could even be cotton down south, and then turned around and harvested sometime in late summer or early fall, and then it is left barren for months, or it gets tilled under and left barren until the next crop, or till sometime early spring, and then it's disked up again and gets ready to plant. I, that's, that's the crop ground that's overrated. That, that's that's the exact specific that we're talking about because going back, uh, traveling to the East Coast um, a couple weeks ago, back where my folks live and in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania and many portions of Pennsylvania, 
70% of the fields, I would say, on average, had a cover crop or at least a double crop on there, a double crop of wheat, um, getting preparation for the, for this year. So with that system, that's excluded from, from this. We're talking about fields or let's say, let's just say acres from, from an, um, a, a value standpoint, five months out of the year have great impact on the wildlife. There's a lot of forage. Then it dries up and then it's gone. And all they're left with are scraps, potentially spilled not grain. Not many. Not many now. Or it's completely dissed under and left absolutely barren. There is zero forage and there is zero cover. So those areas or those acres that could be beneficial aren't at all. So that to me, those acres that are like that and left like that, abandoned with zero value, that's overrated. I, I would rather have a 600-acre property that I can utilize those acres for benefit 24-7, not just five months out of the year that has a big impact. I can make a big impact on 600 acres every single day of the year, not five months out of the year and just left to do whatever. All right, so how do we take crop ground that's overrated into a winner-winner chicken dinner crop ground? I'm talking cover crop it, baby. Yep. Utilize those ac- those acres and sunshine from outside of the typical normal growing season. Plant a cover crop. Let it establish. Get soil health back in there. Allow for a, a better water infiltration. Root system growing, hopefully 24-7. And utilize those acres then for forage. And now you're making a bigger impact in your neighborhood. You can utilize those acres outside of traditional growing season. Take that one step further. What I really like seeing out of these, we're not in crop ground, so it's more of we sit back and deal with cattle on a regular basis um, from where we're at. Uh, But what I'm seeing out of crop farmers starting some of these really regenerative agriculture movement that started – they're going in when they do plant crop or plant corn monoculture for harvest. They go in after the corn is up probably 12 to 36 inches. And then they plant another crop within the rows that is more of a cover crop. Intracropping. And that crop provides forage for the deer uh, and keeps that soil covered. Um, to where there's not an erosion issue, there's no bare ground in between the corn stalks or in between the corn rows. There's now something growing com- all the way across this landscape. So it's infiltrating uh, water a lot better. Um, and so that's a win-win all the way around. So how to tank, how to take crop ground that's overrated and make it more beneficial? Cover crops is a big part of that. Absolutely. So in in this one, I I had Illinois crop ground being overrated. There's a lot of tillage and and disking and just uh, chisel plowing after a crop is gone. Um, So that's why we (laughs) highlighted or threw threw Illinois under the bus and backed over it. (laughs) But uh, um, that happens happens everywhere, unfortunately. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, man, I, I I had a good thought there, or I thought it was a good thought. Yeah, we'll let, us, on. The, let us be the yeah. judge of that. Oh, uh, oh, oh I was going to say, I, you, you brought up the regenerative, graze, uh, regenerative agriculture. We're going to see a swing in the next 10 years. We've seen it, um, a big impact in the last 10 years when it comes to agriculture and changing techniques. Um, I see a much more expedited, uh, exponential growth and change agriculture coming in the next 10 years. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts wildlife. Um, and just agricultural soil health, uh, the uh, environment in general. But we're going in a great direction. So, uh, if you're interested in regenerative agriculture, here's your source sources: Gabe Brown, Ray Archuleta, Grassfed Exchange. Who's your guy in Dave Virginia? Brandt. Who's your guy in Virginia? Oh, What's Joe Salatin. Yep, uh, Savory Institute. All those people are providing a lot of great stuff on YouTube that you can check out. And there's a lot of great books on regenerative agriculture. Um, go check them out. All right. There's a positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that no one's listening. What's yes. next? Um, so next up, uh, another overrated, very much overrated. It kind of goes 
the, the description could almost be very similar to the eastern red cedar bedding area and is switchgrass monocultures. Overrated. That that does happen a lot, and that's one of those trendy things that, that we see. Um, it, again, it's a it's a monoculture, so immediately ag- against it, not, not a big fan at all um, of that monoculture. So I've been to many farms across the Midwest. Um, was that one in Pennsylvania that had switchgrass um, planted in a few monocultures? No doubt. And this this goes back to I think I was recording a vlog the other day and just kind of highlighted um, just the term structure and and what that means from a, a wildlife standpoint. And, and vegetation provides structure for hopefully quality bedding opportunities um, or increasing daylight movement. This and that switchgrass offers good structure. However, when planted in monoculture, it becomes so dense and so thick, even though it is, you know, providing good cover, hiding animals from six foot below, the way that it grows, it grows so incredibly thick that oftentimes deer don't move through it that much. Like we've seen many places where deer tend to avoid, or it's planted in a monoculture for a screen purpose so people can get further or deeper into a property like it's it's almost absent of deer because it's too thick like it is it has a very aggressive nature about it and that's why even in the in the government crp cp 32 38 whatever whatever mixes you're going to see a lower amount of switchgrass and you will sometimes with big blue little blue uh eastern gamma grass because it has a more aggressive nature to it, it's kind of the it's kind of the 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 guy in the locker room who likes to throw his elbows around and push people around. That's how switchgrass is, and so specifically these cave and rock or mm-hmm. um, canlo switchgrass monocultures that are planted for air quote bedding. Um, that there's a better option now. That's not to say we hate these switchgrass species. We have. A, I love them. A, a ton of the uh, the blends that Pure Air produces has switchgrass in it. It's just don't plant it in the monoculture for this purpose. You can improve bedding because, again, we've talked about in the past, deer don't forage on native grasses like that. They they don't they're not eating that. So why have bedding with absolutely zero food in it or or acres devoted to great cover or good structure that has zero forage value. If I want to devote that much to it, I I want some food in there too. I want, in an ideal world, every acre I have on my property has a cover aspect to it and a forage aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And um, you're only getting cover aspect from switchgrass monocultures. Yeah. So Especially if you continue spraying, try to remove the weeds out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's where a dormant season disc. If let's say you let's say you have planted it, and, and and deer are utilizing whatever, you can increase that. Deer are spending the the amount of time deer spend in there by doing some dormant season disking, hopefully to get some forbs, um, back in there, because you're going to open it up and let deer travel through there a little bit more, more sunlight, and then additional forage in there. You will see an increase of deer activity. So try it. Did we talk about seeing some of these natives, giant ragweed, common ragweed, uh, pokeweed already growing long before anybody around here has planted Uh, any? We talked about it last week, I believe. Okay. I just wanted to remind people of that as well. I shot a vlog. I would love to see that included in, like, if you do have a switchgrass monoculture (laughs) and you do some light dormant season disking, that's what you're hoping for, to Mm -hmm. get some early growth long before any crop is in the soil and long before any summer annual food plot is planted to where you just have this great uh, attractive of of not only cover but forage as well. No doubt. Switchgrass bed, uh, switchgrass bedding. Overrated. It's it's even too thick, especially with those taller switchgrass species. Yeah. It's too thick. Like yes, you probably have seen some pheasants go in there when there's heavy snowfall on the ground. I'm sure um, they go in and out. Yeah, it's, but there's better options. You yeah. need it as as we move on, move forward. And you're going to see Kyle and Frank on the podcast more talking, um, just because those are they're full of knowledge. They're local guys. For us, we'll have them on the podcast to to break down some of these um, 
Upland game management um, coming up. And they're going to say the same thing. You need that kind of open but clump bunch grass. And once you get switchgrass monocultures, Pure it stands. gets too thick, too thick for even optimal quail. It, it's almost um, like it's almost like – a comparison of we talk about cool season non-natives. Not mo- most of those like a fescue, orchard grass, smooth brome. They don't ever grow tall enough to provide that structure, but they're thick enough at the ground level that there's no value for wildlife. But but switchgrass, although it does grow up tall to provide some of that cover, it's still too thick for a lot of these other species that we're wanting to promote and for sunlight to get to the ground to promote the vegetation that we want in there. So it's just too it's, thick. It's like <laughs> a six-foot-tall turf grass. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In, in pure stands. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. All right. Overrated. Next one. Next one shouldn't be in any shock, but ornamental use, non-native use, for improving the landscape for hunting. Um, I know you t- talked t- about Two big things come up. Last week, so. Two weeks still, ago, two I weeks think. Two weeks ago. Two big ones come to mind. Musganthus gigantus for screening and autumn olive for bedding and cover and all that other stuff that makes me just they don't have cringe. a they don't have a role here they never did in our country or they they yeah state agencies are brought some of them in not all of them um so don't blame them all but brought some of them in for distinct purposes uh, without understanding the long-term effect of them. So, again, some of those some of those plants do have a structure value to them, but that doesn't mean that you should plant it at all. That they don't have a purpose or a role and in I our landscape. And Miscanthus gigantic is uh, gigantus is sterile. Air quote that one. Um, there are better options that still provide better. Uh, okay, so it's a non-native. It may be sterile. I don't think the verdict's out yet uh, on whether it is or not. Bradford pear was supposed to be sterile. Um, if you have it, we have native species that don't recognize it as being a food source, so they're most likely not going to eat it. Um, so scratch out something that you planted that's just for cover now. Uh, and it's just like switchgrass, but way more aggressive when it comes to thick. So deer aren't going to bed in it. And and another one that comes to mind that I'm afraid I'm going to see more people doing is pompous grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's much better options. And as we've talked before, and we're going to talk later on this podcast about the importance of having small game habitat um, to where we can increase the numbers of, of rabbits and mice and voles and rats and songbirds and ground nesting um, birds because those are buffer prey we want more animals on our landscape so we can basically feed our predators that are native predators Um, and you don't get that by planting non-native species like miscanthus gigantus or any of the miscanthus grass Um, there are better options that are native um, and autumn olive is an aggressive, I mean, it's listed by, I don't know how many states as an invasive species. And you guys up north that are saying, hey, some of our best bedding areas have autumn olive in it. Well, maybe that's true. But if I go into Detroit or Milwaukee and I see a guy eating out of the garbage can, am I going to say that's the best food source in, in Milwaukee or Detroit? No. I it's just all, if so. It, I, I don't see me there. <laughs> Now I might say that about Texas, the the trip we made oh, to Texas for yeah. authentic Mex- authentic Tex-Mex <laughs> was- with, with Blake Hamilton. That was hilarious. <laughs> that was bad. That yeah. was just a bad restaurant. <laughs> and so, um, I wouldn't say that about going and saying that's the best food available in Detroit. And so, if they're using it, it's because it's their only option. Get it out of there. Remove that. It's not good and, for and, the land. And just because it's 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 the best option. Right now, again, that is an indication that, okay, there is poor habitat on the landscape. Something else needs to be done. And, again, because it is the best at this time doesn't mean it cannot be replaced and improved. So just leaving it and letting it go is not a solution. It's not the right way to go about managing the land. Remove it. Do it. I mean, it's a responsibility, honestly. Um, it's irresponsible, I think, to intentionally plan it. So remove it, address it, and replace it with something better that is native that will still produce that cover that you're looking for. It's not like you're tr- we're saying, you know, 
change it and, and that, those areas shouldn't be covered. No, we're just saying remove it because it's a bad species and and keep it cover in that area, but just use something that, that that's better, that's native. Chances are if, if it's growing in the understory and that's why the deer are there and you cut it, now it's open, we need to do a timber stand improvement or something to get some of that because 99.9% of the time you go into a closed canopy forest, there's trees that need to be removed to improve the health of the forest. And so you could remove those trees and create bedding, create more sunlight to where more vegetation grows because of the increase in sunlight. So um, autumn olive, Miscanthus gigantus, please get them out of here. You'll make me feel a lot better. What's next? Plus you'll make the land feel a lot better, and that's what's more important. All right, next one up is overrated clover ladino. Oh, so yeah. overrated and someone, ladino clover. I know clover. someone was just driving. My they dad just, probably about break. wrecked if he heard like, that. Whoa, 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 what? Yeah, that's right. Basically, a straight monoculture of clover has... Specifically, has had, ladino yeah, clover. Has had its place... And has been, um, oh gosh, marketed very, very, very well, and captured a lot of people. But again, let's not let's not misconstrue what we're saying and misunderstand. Clover mixes are great, but Ladino clover is not the best clover that's out there. I don't even like it as my top white clover, and it, but right. it's most popular. Correct, but. Why why plant just that one? If you're going to have a perennial clover plot, everyone can see with ease that it does not fare well during certain portions of the year. So why just rely solely on it? There's other forages like introducing alfalfa into the mixture or red clover that occupies Chicory. and peaks different time frames that, hey, now I've got a perennial um, food plot that has attraction from March all the way through till November and sometimes even in December in our area that every single window through that there's a forage in there that is definitely palatable, extremely attractive and doesn't wilt away and suck and hide it all of its nutrients in its root system during the summer. That's what Ladino does. When it gets hot and it gets stressed, that's what it does. Other forages that can be compare or or that can be uh, companion or mixed or blended well with Ladino or what we prefer, Durana, it can happen, and we much more prefer that. And so that is why we say Ladino is overrated in a food plot situation. It shouldn't be the only species that's planted because of. Um, I guess what's what what's important is. And, and people understand this because of previous podcasts. We don't like monocultures because there's not one plant that can do everything and be everything 24-7. It's just not possible. So we're picking on Ladino because it was marketed very heavily and is very, very, very it's popular. It's very popular, not only in, so, in food plotting, but cattle yeah, as well. Yeah, but w- let's, let's not be narrow-minded. And, and even though it can take um, browse pressure, it still doesn't peak as much as all these other forages combined will so let's do that and it's healthier for the soil that's right all right this next one's definitely going to be a toe stomper and and a a debate and we'll probably get a couple emails about this one overrated practices let's let's say this is this is called overrated and every time i say that i'm thinking of high school and and the opposing player who you heard so much overrated. about is up there and everybody's chanting overrated. We're chanting it on this one because it is a practice we see a lot of people preach and do, and they do it for a few months, and then they think they've changed the world or they've paid to have a, a professional trapper come in. Oh, so there it is. Yeah. And they're they're doing it on 200 acres, and none of their neighbors are doing it. And they're devoting all this time to it, and it's like – you may create just a crack in the uh, – you're creating just a crack in the whole predator-prey relationship, but that crack fills up really quickly. Really, really quickly. But, again, this is just a time-value money aspect of things is what happens if you devote all that time that you spent trapping into habitat management? Do you gain more successful 
reproduction of fawns and poults that you're looking for, when test that. How about how about you try that? Because I guarantee you'll make a bigger impact. Because again, what we're doing is we're managing and providing better forage and cover at the same time. Predators are natural, and and I will say this: we can't cover it all um, in this podcast. But go back and listen to. I don't know the number, but um, we we did a, did a podcast. Is the coyote really to blame? I believe was the title. Yeah, uh, we did a couple. Then we had the guys from uh, Frank and Kyle came on, and yeah. they talked about some of the raccoon research. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's other ways to remove predators without actually physically har- killing and, and yeah, you know trapping them out and. And and one thing is like if you're trapping coyotes and you're saying you're helping the turkeys and you're trapping raccoons and you're helping the turkeys, coyotes predate on raccoons. Totally. And coyotes predate on possums. So if you really if we're saying okay, you're trapping for improved turkey hunting, focus on the raccoons, possums, other nest predators. Don't focus on the coyote. Coyote is a lot harder to catch. Takes a lot more time to set the traps, um, and you can accomplish way more if. Uh, just by running dog proofs and, and cage traps to remove these nest predators. So to to summarize this, on small tracts of land that trapping is done um, on, in a short window, the results are going to be very minimal because those voids are extremely temporary and they're filled very quickly um, by either transient coyotes or just new offspring that move in and fill these voids. So oftentimes, um, I mean, again, predators have been on the landscape how, how many years? Tons and tons and tons and tons. Longer and tons. than you and I. Absolutely. So we're not going to get rid of them right now. We're not going to yeah. do it. Uh, history has proven to us we can't remove the coyote. We've from had the bounties. Landscape. We've had ex- I, way more trapping right now. Obviously, we're not going to do it, and, and our our efforts are futile. And that shouldn't be the goal to remove them all. But if you're looking again, overrated for if you're trying to completely um, remove them and to improve the reproduction rates. Um, probably not the best method. No, it's overrated. Well, and I would say this. Uh, let let's let's clarify this. Um, and do the, and say that in in your um average or typical trapping season. So from like November, December, January, that's a long window before fawns begin to drop and poults begin to uh, be on the landscape. That's where that void really gets filled back in. However, there are some states that will allow you to trap right during fawning nesting. season, nesting yeah. season. Those those results have seen different or have, have been different in those states and studies. However, not everyone has that ability nor the time to be able to do that. Let's ask a hard question. How do you feel, you know, as a kid? Well, this is a rabbit trail, but indulge me. Um, Ooh, sounds weird. When I was a kid, I had no problem shooting a bird and never eating it like it was just like oh i shot this thing that's cool i'm looking at the feathers uh shoot a a squirrel and or a chipmunk and be like man i've never seen one of these up close i want to shoot one and and then you like do this specimen investigation you're looking it over trapping is one of those i have i've really struggled with in recent years with the lack of i just say respect respect towards these animals um, as far as sometimes, a lot of times I've seen this on properties, um, that I've worked that have, that don't, basically you just, you, you trap the animal and you throw it in the ditch and it's over, um, with little remorse and, um, and not even using pelts, not even taking the pelts. Um, I, I just sort of really struggled with this. And so I'm asking you guys if you're if you're trapping and you're like okay let's let's look at this and say um, how can I what does this look like what does this image look like and and trapping yes has a place um, but since we're doing overrated it's it's trapping on small properties for a short window thinking you're doing um, a huge difference and also trapping um, during a short window. And devoting all your winter time when you tell your wife you're headed to the farm, which is a great time to do TSI, you're going trapping. That's when it becomes overrated. Um, and so, what do you? 
with trapping to me is one of those that like of course if we have a an overpopulation of predators we're going to find a way to remove them but it's not something that i really it's way down the list of activities that i enjoy on on uh on the landscape and it's way down the list of activities that i'm going to do because i know i'm my time is much better spent running a chainsaw uh running a drip torch and and improving the land that way yeah, I, I mean, I don't disagree at all. I, I, I think that, I think that it, everyone likes to point a finger at at something and be like, "That's the problem. That's the issue." We all know that predators obviously consume and eat prey. We tend to concern more, be more concerned about prey. So it's easy to point a finger. But again, if and and I do challenge everyone, encourage everyone to truthfully go and seek information regarding predator population dynamics and it will probably confuse you because it is very complex and it's not just as simple as i'm going to take this animal and it's going to improve the number of fawns or it's going to improve the number of poults it's incredibly incredibly dynamic so we can't just be simple minded and think if i remove this it's going to do this it's going to affect a long list of other things so just, just, I, I, I just say, be open-minded about it and consider it. Consider that what we're saying um, in this in this regard of trying to make an impact on small properties with trapping during your typical seasons is is not going to be the bu- biggest bang for the buck. It is typically overrated if that's what your results, if that's what your desired results are. A, a lot of the research that shows that trapping that trapping um, helped fawn recruitment that was all done in a bigger scale where a bigger area was trapped and coyotes were removed so there was this big void to where they could come in or there was fencing that they used to where they they kept coyotes out of these areas there's there's lots of different studies and everything but most do point to regardless temporary voids it's unrealistic it's unrealistic and impractical ways even even on nine nine hundred acres, if we trap, it w- wouldn't do anything. They'd be back in a week. Yeah. Other ones would be back. Not that they would resurrect or anything. <laughs> um, all right, next one. Overrated understory projects. That means we're talking about. Sometimes uh, you get ambitious. You hear a land of legacy podcast of TSI, and you go out and you start cutting trees. You roll up them sleeves, and you're like, "I'm the man. Got the chainsaw. I'm gonna cut some stuff." And you go out and you cut, you take, okay, I'm going to take this whole acre, these two acres right here, I'm going to cut all these trees. And you get a little uncomfortable of dropping bigger trees. And so Which is all, fine. All, all you do is cut the understory trees. You're not really, it's like, we want sunlight. And so you go out and you basically cut out, um, you cut the weeds under a bush in your yard where there's still no sunlight coming down. Same thing with trees. Um, you didn't remove the tarp and let the sun shine. What what it's most still... likely happened was you actually removed the second generation. You yeah. removed the next ones that were supposed to take the larger ones' place. Not every mid-story canopy tree is is bad. So you went in and and completely removed again that next generation. So you're, in long-term years, you're going to see, oh crap, I'm I'm thin on my oaks here now. Well, because you probably went in and cut them, you have to be more concerned about sunlight. Pick the larger trees that don't have much value and that are irregular shaped, that have poor crowns, that are forked, that are all um, maybe diseased. Pick those ones, select those ones to take out rather than some of your mid-story canopy trees. Use sunlight to direct you, to guide you, if you're wanting to make an impact on improving the amount of forage at a deer's level, at a turkey's level, at a quail's level, use sunlight as a guide, not just smaller trees that you feel comfortable felling. If you don't feel comfortable felling larger trees, don't do it because you're going to get Girdle hurt. Girdle them. Girdle them. Use herbicide. Do what you need to. There's other alternative practices to dropping them to the ground. Use sunlight as a I guide. even do that. When I find a tree that's leaning a certain yeah. way, and I'm like, if I drop that tree, it's going to fall on that smaller tree, and I yeah, don't want right. to do that. It might fall on a smaller I'm going to girdle that tree so it breaks down over time. Yeah. Another thing about understory projects that's overrated is prescribed fire and closed canopy forest. Yeah. 
It prescribed fire is. is is a wonderful, wonderful tool, probably up there in the top three of things you can do on your property to make it more beneficial to the land. But if it's a closed canopy forest and you're burning, you're only doing a short little period benefit. You're you're gonna you're basically just cleaning off cleaning off leaf litter and uh, and you're gonna get some green growth and you think, man, it's doing great. I I accomplished my goals. And then the leaves come on the on the trees and it's like, whoa, it's like they pulled the the carpet right out from under it. Um, they cut the legs out of it. It's they, it's kind of like, I think of like a stage, like a show or production. It's like when the show ends and the curtains come back, like, you know, you have all the sun or the light shining on the stage and the curtains come and close it off. And it's like, daggum, y'all, it got dark in here. Well, there's no more sunlight, no more energy allowed yeah. to hit those plants on the understory at the ground level. So they're basically constricted, cut off, and that's as much as they grow. In comparison to areas that have, whether it's been timbered or managed as a woodland, managed as a savanna, um, those areas still will, through the entire growing season, get sunlight. And there's where that diversity truthfully comes in and the growth that is additional forage and structure for many wildlife to use. That's right. Next one. It's overrated. Overrated. In in closed canopy uh, forest woodlands. Overrated. Supplemental feeding programs. Yeah, I, I think that there's just a lot of misinformation of, of supplemental feeding programs. And and not to say that, hey, I like I like the heart of a lot of people when they're when they're saying, Oh, I, I supplemental feed through the winter. Hey, that's I'm glad that you are considering that as a stress period. But again, how much money and it's that's it's not it's not my money that you're spending. This is why we say it's overrated. Yeah. It costs a lot of money and to time. keep it out enough. It wear and tear, getting it out there, filling feeders, taking it out there, picking it up, all this stuff, guys. Woody browse, that's winter time. That's what yeah. you can do. That's forage. That's cover. Go create that with a chainsaw. And there's a lot of little winter annuals that are growing in yeah. in, in, in prairies that deer are eating. Like corn is not that great. It's not that nutritional. Go and do some woody browse, and it, it the supplemental feeding in that aspect is is very overrated. That's so right. It, it there's better things to do. Yep, costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, a lot of wear and tear, and if you're on a smaller property, you're not making that big of an impact, if any, um, other than confining deer. And at this day and age with CWD, that's the last thing I really want to do. Um, and, and with that being said, another big thing that's overrated that you and I have been guilty of for years and years and years, but not the last two nope. is minerals. Yeah. I, 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 to me, this is one thing that, yes, it's super easy. What is, what is a better way to put, to, to get deer in front of your trail camera than putting out mineral and feed? I don't know if there is one. I don't think there is one. I mean, you put it out and deer come to it, but at the same time. What's more important? If you think that you're putting that out and you're going to get bigger deer, non-typical racks, and all that stuff, you're not. Yeah. It's overrated. This is the wrong podcast. You, <laughs> you, fell, into, you <laughs> fell into the trap. The wool was pulled over your eyes. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of goes back to the whole water thing for, for me is deer get a lot of their nutrients and minerals from the plants that they're consuming. And again, this again goes right back to diversity. If you have diverse forages out there, they're all pulling different things out of the soil that deer are getting naturally. Why congregate them beyond just if you're looking for pictures inventory? A lot of times, just like bodybuilders, if you have an excess amount of minerals or supplements in your body, your body just pees them out. So they get what they want and what they need from plants they're attracted to those mineral blocks because of the salt content that's in there. And so they're coming back, coming back, and coming back, not because they're necessary. Uh, I need boron. Uh, yeah. I need zinc. Uh. <laughs> yeah. It's not It's not for that reason. Um, and and I, I think I've heard it multiple times, like, I started really, really uh, putting mineral out, and, and deer just got, you know, they got a lot of mass on their antlers. It's like, well, did you start passing deer at the same time? Because they probably just got older. Or did you just attract a buck that was on your property that you had never like? Sure, right. <laughs> there, there's you can't you can't just say, oh, my mineral or the mineral I put out 
it's a direct correlation. There's so many variables out there. Yeah. So, and again, does it really put inches on deer? I don't think so. I I don't. No, I don't think so. And, and I that's think why there's a lot of research your, that shows that. There's t- a lot of research that shows that. Um, but that's why, like, when we made the decision prior to CWD being in our area or next to our county, I don't. What are we really missing out on? Okay, we might not have as many pictures of deer in front of the cameras. We don't get it's pictures okay. of deer in July and August. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I'm all right with it. We got other ways to get pictures. We got them on food and plots. By golly, we had bigger deer this year than we've ever had before. Not a a, a, gr- a drop or a bit of mineral on a property. No, not not one. And now, I mean, with research out of Pennsylvania of uh, the the prion being in mineral sites, yep, both stirred up in the water in the mud, it scares me. There's not enough. I don't know enough about CWD. Nobody knows enough about CWD for me to go, yeah, let's go dump out. And and the other time, yes, before you, when I make this statement, you're going to say, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. The the regularity, the, the regularity of minerals placed on a landscape in the form of I'm putting one out for every 80 acres or 50 acres or 100 acres, that's not natural. Now, there are areas where there's natural mineral licks, salt mineral licks. Mineral deposits, yeah. But that's not very regular. Not in the in the fact of of uh, one per 50 acres. And so that's where I, it's not very natural. And uh, and so there you have it. Congregates deer. It doesn't put additional inches of, of uh, antler on deer. Costs and, money. Yeah, it's, it's overrated. That's right. All right, guys. There you have it. If. For, for the one hey, person, for mom. For, Thanks, mom, for listening yeah. this long. Kirsten and Judy, thank yeah. you so much for <laughs> hanging with us. Oh, y'all are dolls. Yeah. So no, anyway, really, we do we do appreciate you guys hanging in there with us, and I, I'd like to hear what you guys think. Again, some of this stuff was was probably regional, but I want to hear what you guys thought about it, and if there was something like, ah, guys, I just don't, I don't agree. That's totally fine, but let us know what it is. Um, I would love to talk with people that that may be opposed to this um, because I'm well, so passionate. One, one through twelve, or yeah, <laughs> one any of them, I I, because it's like I'm so passionate about this that um, and spend so much time thinking about this and and trying to find the best way. And and I feel 100 percent that we have found the way, and, the, and our mentality and our mindset is exactly where it needs to be, and in thinking holistically and big picture and. And uh, and I hope we can convert and get more people thinking like that because what we do for white-tailed deer, a lot of times the most popular stuff isn't beneficial in northern bobwhite quail. Um, it's not beneficial wild turkey. But if we can manage for those species at you the said, same time. You said we. You meant in general. In general. general public. In general. Um, because what we do, the, the forest openings, edge feathering, prescribed fire, woodland restory, all that stuff is great for the quail. Uh, and what's and and many other species. So, woo wee! That was a fun one. Um, and anyway, um, there you guys don't, have it. Leave don't us a send review. the doctor bill to us for your crunched toes. Yeah, we ain't taking it. We ain't <sighs> accepting it. And it was our toes two, three years ago. Sure, uh, we've we've done some of this stuff, guys. For and sure. And so, anyway, guys, thank you so much. We'll catch you next time. Appreciate it. Yeah.